Father, pour out your Holy Spirit upon us. Pour out your Holy Spirit upon us. Pour out your Holy Spirit upon us. Uh, Father, uh, we ask that uh, you help us by your Holy Spirit to use the very best of our mind and our heart and our imagination and our will to listen to your word and to listen to you. At the same time, Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would humble our imaginations and our hearts and our wills so that we will acknowledge that unless you move and work within us, uh, we are powerless. So, Father, we ask that in your mercy and in your kindness, you would do this double powerful work of your Holy Spirit in us this morning. Father, it's your word. We want and need to hear you speak to us. And all this we ask in the name of Jesus, your Son and our Savior. Amen. Please be seated. Um, we had a hymn sing last night, and I had to, I was, I didn't have to, I had the great privilege of leading it, uh, a cappella without a mic, so that's why I'm, I'm hoarse. I sang Christmas carols very loudly for 70 minutes last night, so now I'm hoarse. Um, uh, some, uh, you know that I, there's a particular Starbucks where I usually work on my sermons on uh, week, weekday mornings, and so now there's uh, several people there who will often, not every week, but there's people who regularly ask me what my sermon's going to be on. And uh, so this one fellow, who's quite a skeptic, uh, usually he asks me what the sermon's going to be on, and then he gives me a lecture as to why I'm all wrong, <laughs> why Christians are wrong. And this week, he said, what's your topic on? And I said, uh, why is God so bossy about money? And he literally took a step back and said, I can't believe you're going to talk about that. He said, that's absolutely dynamite. That's, he, he was actually, it was the first time, one of the few times I'd seen him a little bit speechless that I was going to talk about why is God so bossy about money. And uh, as we all know, uh, one of the great um, perceptions of non-Christians about Christians, uh, but and also I think maybe spiritual or uh, spiritual uh, or not spiritual, not religious people of, of even religious people in general, is that God is very bossy about money. Not only is he bossy about money, he's uh, intrusive, harmful. Um, not helpful and not realistic. And I think that would be a very common view about um, religious people in general and Christians in particular about money. So here's my opportunity. I'm going to just say if you're a guest here this morning, uh, maybe as a seeker, uh, maybe you just got dragged here by somebody, uh, or if you've been coming to this church for a while and you are not a follower of Jesus, um, on behalf of Jesus, I want to say that we don't want you to give us any money at all. And I'm very serious. And it's not because your money's not good or we don't like you. Just, we really, literally, this is an opportunity. I know, you know, for some of you, it's a, a bit of a scary topic. You are maybe glad that I'm going to raise it. But this is a real opportunity. And you'll hear it's not just me, it's actually what the Bible says, is that it would really, really be good if you give us no money whatsoever. In, instead, after the service, have as many cookies and as much coffee as you can on us. Uh, we want to be generous to you, uh, but you'll see in, in a moment why it is that I say, uh, please don't give us money. Uh, now, the fact is that uh, many Christians and many churches, too many, are bossy and intrusive and unhelpful about money and are fixated about money and probably worship money. 
I mean, and in fact, actually, uh, one of the judgments that could, you can see in a lot of the churches in the city of Ottawa that are closing is that the congregations, rather than giving their buildings to, let's say, an immigrant church, a, a new Canadian's church, they sell it to developers because they want the money. So, in fact, it is a problem in churches and for Christians that they're fixated with money, bossy about money, or maybe, anyway, it's, it is an issue. But the question is, is that a Christian problem and a human problem, or is it in fact what God wants us to do? I mean, if, if you think about it for a second, just sort of take a little bit of a time out with this whole question, um, the world is pretty bossy about money. Um, uh, the liberal, uh, the provincial governments and the federal governments don't think we use our money well enough, so they want to make changes to the Canada Pension Plan. Uh, every Saturday, if not more often, there's regularly a whole raft of columns and articles in the newspaper to tell us how we should be spending our money, foolish ways to use money, smart ways to use money. In fact, there's a bit of a human problem about being fixated with money and being uh, bossy and intrusive about it. But the question is, is that a human problem of which Christians share because we aren't listening to the Bible or thinking about Jesus, or is, in fact, the Bible bossy about money is the God who is revealed in Scripture bossy and intrusive and foolish about money. So it'd be a great help if you get your Bibles out, and we're going to look at that. Um, if you're wondering why on earth we're talking about this, is one of the things that we do in this church is we preach through books of the Bible. And that means uh, we just take the topics as they come up. Uh, it's not that I have a fixation with this. Uh, it's just, in fact, I'll give you a warning um, we're going to be looking at two chapters and 39 verses, not all today, but this week, next week, and then in January we'll, when we come back to Second Corinthians that talk about money. And it's just the way the book moves. It's just the way that the flow of the book moves. So if you get your Bibles, look to Second Corinthians, and uh, it's chapter 8, Second Corinthians chapter 8, and uh, let's start reading it. Uh, verse 1 and 2. We want you to know, brothers and sisters about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. That's a, an area of Greece at the time. This is a, originally a letter which was written about the year 56 or 57, and uh, it's to the areas that now be known as like Thessalonica, uh, Berea, uh, Philippi, and uh, that's what he's referring to. So I'll read the sentence again. We want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Now, here's the first thing, if you could put it up. The really surprising thing is we begin, when we hear that the Bible is going to talk about money, we begin with this um, cultural assumption that the Bible is going to be bossy about money, but the Bible begins in a very surprising place. It begins by, God wants us to know about grace. <laughs> God wants us to know about grace. So it's a bit of a surprise that that's how it's going to begin. Um, and some of you might wonder, well, what does the Bible mean by grace? And Andrew, if you could put up the second point. Um, this is just, if, if, you go, if you go throughout the New Testament in particular, but the entire Bible, the Old Testament as well, because the Old Testament teaches that God is gracious and that he is, he is filled with grace. He is a God who is characterized by grace. 
This is, I think, a very uh, good summary of how the Bible teaches what grace is, uh, God's grace is. God's grace, or grace, is a justice without compromise and a love to the uttermost, which has real power to enter into human lives and change us for our true good. I think that's what the Bible means by God's grace. It means it is God's grace is a justice without compromise. This is very, very important. It's not favoritism. It's not, you know, that we're going to favor one social group over another. We're going to favor one uh, age group over another. We're going to favor one ethnic or national or racial group or sexual type over another. Uh, it is justice without compromise. And it's also love to the uttermost. And it's great, it's justice without compromise and love to the uttermost, which, because it's from God, has the real power to enter into your life and mine and change us for our true good. So, this is something that God, that God wants us to know about. It's not just something that he does to amuse himself like a hobby. That's a very nature of God. And he wants us to know about it. And he wants us to know about how it actually has become powerfully real and present for people's good in this area of Macedonia. Now, uh, and and that's how it begins. Verse 1, we want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Now, some of you, if you've come to the church before, you notice, you'll know that, in fact, it's sort of, I got an email just recently. I, I, I knew I did it, but I, I'd never really put it in these terms. But George, <laughs> and in fact, often I, I start to walk to the side and I go, but George, and then I raise uh, the objection of somebody. And this is often where I would have a but George moment, but I'm not. Because the Bible, in fact, is implicitly asking us a question. The Bible is, in fact, saying, but Canadians, (laughs) but Canada, here's the question. Here's the question. Does money, having lots of money, create and encourage generosity to others? Does having money, here's a question for Canadians, does having money, does having lots of money, having more money, does that naturally create generosity in human beings, in Canadians? If we're honest, I think we'd say it doesn't. And it's often very hard for us to say that. And one of the reasons it's hard for us to say that, and this isn't really a topic of this sermon, because this whole sermon, the way it's talking about money, isn't talking about idolatry. But money is often a very powerful idol in our hearts and in our imaginations. And idols don't like to be talked about bluntly. Uh, when we have an idol in our heart and our mind, it will cause our mind and our heart and our will to be evasive and less clear. Because idols never like to be brought into the light. (laughs) But I think you would agree, if you look not only in Canada but around the world, that the mere presence of extra money 
does not usually elicit, just, just by the money itself, a feeling of now I can be more generous. That's not normally what arises in people's hearts. In fact, if you want evidence of this, just go to either the Citizen or the Globe and Mail or the National Post and read the financial sections for the last six months and see how many times they say, this is how you save money on your taxes and this is how you make more money and you're doing all of this so you can be more generous. My guess is that you will find no articles about that. Or maybe you'll find one. So just just for a second here, this is one of these time-out moments, and it's fine. God's a, God has big shoulders, and God is quite fine. He, In fact, one of the things about the Gospels is that Jesus loves honest questions. But at the same time, if you read the Gospels, Jesus often asks honest questions. And so here we have this this cultural fear, a human fear, that God is going to be bossy, intrusive, hurtful, and harmful, and unwise about money. And as we start to get into it, we, we discover that, in fact, the Bible is asking us a question. The Bible is asking me a question. Okay, just to think about this, does the mere presence of more money in our lives make us more generous? So here, if you could put up the third point, Andrew... What is going on in this text is that money does not naturally create generosity to others, but God's grace grows generosity to others. This is cultural dynamite. Um, you know, just even within our own culture, you know what often at a, as, at a, at a, at a, level, a level of common grace Having more money doesn't usually create generosity, but you know one of the things in our culture that creates generosity? Love. Love. I mean, many of you can maybe even think in your own offices or your places of work that there might be a woman who wouldn't, would really, you could tell what, that when the card comes around to, 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 to they're given a gift for somebody who's leaving or something's happened to them and getting that toonie out of the purse and letting go of it for that person <laughs> is really hard. But that same person might talk about her daughter's wedding and talk about how she's hoping to have a big raise so she can give the money to her daughter. So we see right here, this is a cultural thing. It's not that there's no generosity in our culture, but it's not usually created by money. It's created by something else like love. And as we're going to see, this is, this is actually sort of a, a truth that, that the Bible makes clear, that Marxism doesn't tell us, uh, queer theory doesn't tell us this, deconstructionism doesn't tell us this, Ayn Rand doesn't tell us this, Nietzsche doesn't tell us this, it doesn't sort of instill it within us. But the Bible makes this clear. So the Bible shows that money does not naturally create generosity to others, but God's grace grows generosity to others. Um, you know, in, in this text, if, if you read 1 and 2 again, look at it again, verses 1 and 2. We want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. How does he know that God's grace has been powerful there? He says, verse 2, for in a severe test of affliction, affliction means basically they're suffering terrible persecution. Uh, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty. In other words, they're not only experiencing persecution, but they're experiencing persecution that's made them poor, 
have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Look at that. How can poverty overflow in a wealth of generosity? But God's grace creates that. God's grace coming into our lives. The Holy Spirit, as we're going to see in a moment, part of God's grace, as the Holy Spirit works, it creates a generosity. Now, some of you might say, but George, (laughs) you asked a challenging question of me, but George, this sounds like uh, God is doing something here that's actually making these people weaker. He's furthering their oppression by giving them less financial resources. Well, let's go on and read verses 3 to 5. Here's what Paul says, what the Bible says. For they gave, verse 3, they gave according to their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And here saints just means any, any, in the Bible, in the New Testament, if you've given your life to Jesus, you're a saint. That's how it describes people who've given their lives to Jesus. It doesn't mean you live well. <laughs> it means you're gods. <laughs> and some of us, anyway, we, God needs a lot of work in a lot of our lives, right? Begging, I'll just say that again, verse 4. Begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints, and this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Okay, so that's what the Bible says. So here's um, the context um, in this area that Paul's talking about, uh, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, that area. Uh, People have become Christians, and in that particular pagan culture context, uh, they've experienced ostracism, loss of status, loss of business contacts that have greatly reduced their income. Some of the people, we know from Lydia and the Philippian jailer, had financial means, and for whatever reason now, the implication is is that many or all of them have lost their financial means, and they're now suffering poverty in the context of persecution. And Paul is collecting money as he goes around uh, what we now call as Turkey and what we now know of as Greece, and he's collecting money from these pagans who become Christians because the Jewish believers in Jerusalem have also suffered great ostracism and persecution and are in dire financial need. And so Paul is going along collecting money in what we now refer to as Turkey and Greece for the Jewish believers. In fact, it's actually a very, very powerful thing because, you know, when I I said about how one of the things that overcomes the tendency of money is, is love... Uh, this is an aspect of love because these these uh, men and women are crossing language lines, social lines, cultural lines, ethnic lines, geographic lines to really love the other. And that's what God's grace has done. As God's grace has come into their lives, rather than them becoming more ethnocentric or, you know, more just cultural-centric or national-centric, it's breaking down these barriers because they have a compassion for people who are of a different ethnicity, different culture, just everything. And as God's grace comes into their lives, they have this desire to give sacrificially for the other. So here's the point, first number four, Andrew. The Bible does not romanticize poverty. Nowhere in the Bible... There's no Walden Pond. There's no noble savage. There's nothing like Jean-Jacques Rousseau. There's nothing like that. The Bible does not romanticize poverty. 
were being poor. But the Bible tells us of how God's grace frees, dignifies, and empowers the poor and the powerless. The Bible tells us of how God's grace frees, dignifies, and empowers the poor and the powerless. You see, God's grace, we receive it. It's, it's a passive thing. That I can't do anything to earn God's grace. It's not something that I can do that if I do enough good actions, somehow or another God's grace will, I'll, I'll earn it like a prize. It's not like, you know, saving up points or air mile points or aeroplan points. You get enough points, you get a flight. Uh, it's, there's nothing I can do. It's something we receive passively. But at the same time, it's something that when God's grace comes into our lives, it creates activity. <laughs> God's grace comes into our lives, and, it, and, it, and, and it, as God's grace, as Jesus comes and lives within us, as the Holy Spirit comes within us, the Holy Spirit starts to irrigate things within our life, in our mind, in our heart, in our will, in our imagination. And at the same time that it, it starts to do this irrigating work within us, it creates this desire for the grace to continue to go out in different ways. And that's, as we'll see in a moment, the, the gifts, the charisms, that come out for from us. And and that's what's happening here. You see, um, the you know what's the thing what's one of the things that we know about the poor? Well first of all, people don't think about the poor. Uh, I mean one of the things that's going on in our culture right now is that there's very little talk of the poor. It's about middle ta- class tax cuts. And in fact you know, on, on one hand, the fact that we have a concern at all for the poor in our culture is something, as I think, that comes out of our Christian past. But, you know, at the same time, even what goes on in our culture isn't us sacrificially giving, but us wanting to have the government spend other people's money to help the poor. Do you know that um, the percentage of people in Canada that actually give enough money to charity that they can claim an income tax receipt has been going down as a percentage of the population ever since Revenue Canada started to... I think it's now 24 consecutive years of decline in our country. And, and often what we want is other people to give their money. But the poor are, are irrelevant. They're irre- invisible. We see them as victims... And they often, by our culture, they're understood to be irrelevant, invisible, victims, and powerless. But here we see that when God comes into their lives, it means they're not irrelevant, they're not invisible, they're not to see themselves as complete and utter passive victims that have no power. But God uses their limited resources and their great real restrictions in such a way that they are a true and noteworthy blessing. That's why I say that the Bible doesn't romanticize poverty, but it tells us of how God's grace frees, dignifies, and empowers the poor and the powerless. And in fact, look again at this text. Look again at verse 4, verse 3 again. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor or the privilege of taking part in the relief of the saints. Let's be honest. How does our culture understand favor or privilege? In our culture, 
In a world where money is the primary narrative, favor means avoiding pain. Privilege means avoiding pain. Sorry, there is two-tier health system in our country because rich athletes and rich people don't have long waiting lists. And part of the way that money and power works in our culture is we don't even ask, why is it that that rich person, why is it that my, my grandmother has to wait six months for surgery and the rich athlete has surgery the next day? Why is it my neighbor has to wait eight months for surgery and that rich person or that powerful person they had surgery right away. Like, we don't ask that question. Because, because in, in fact, the idols of our culture make us blind to the fact, and the normal way that we understand favor is getting out of obligations and keeping our money in our own pocket. And so here in the text, we see a profound inversion of how our culture and how human beings normally by their own flesh understand power these people, as the graces come into their lives, they beg Paul for the favor, for the privilege of being used by God to bless these others. It's a very, very, very powerful text. Now, some of you might remember, I mean, hopefully all of you remember that I said if you've come here this morning and you haven't given your life to Jesus, even if you've been coming here for many, many months, maybe even for years, and, and, and you would, would not really describe yourself as having given your life to Jesus, that he is your Savior and your Lord. And I've said, I, we'd, it would be really be good if you give us no money. And I, I get that from verse 5. Did you notice it? Verse 5. Look at again what, what it says in verse 5. I will start, uh, and this, not as we expected, in other words, they've given themselves and their money, and this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. And in the original language, first to the Lord has a double sense. It means the very first thing they do is give themselves to the Lord or rededicate themselves to the Lord. And it also means first in importance and in priority. Uh, you know, if you've read Stephen Covey and, and looked at how he does some of his time management and, and, you know, you get the boulders of your day or your week or your month or your year, you do the boulders first or the huge rocks first because they're the first, the big things, the things that are of the utmost priority. And, and that's what he's saying here. What God desires as the first thing that we do, what God desires as the thing that we recognize is most important is to give ourselves to him. And, and the, the money issues, they're going to come down the pike. And so if, if you could put it up, Andrew, God does not have any needs. He does not need your money. God loves you as a person and longs to have you return to him. God loves you as a person and longs to have you return to him. Remember what grace is? Grace is a justice without compromise and a love to the uttermost which has the real power to enter into human lives and change us for our true good. And God desires to enter in. <laughs> he, he desires to have us enter into him. He desires to have Jesus enter into us. He desires, 
with the, with the Son and the Holy Spirit to make his, his home within us. He desires to pour, as we give ourselves to Jesus, that, and now Jesus comes and lives within us, the Holy Spirit comes and lives within us. And as, as, as this happens, God gives gifts. God gives gifts. Look at how it continues in, in, in verses 6 and 7. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he has started, that is making a collection for money, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, and here in speech it, it means speaking in tongues, it means uh, speaking, uh, being able to preach, it means being able to teach the Bible, in knowledge, it, mean, it can mean having words of knowledge, it also can mean just knowing the faith and, and, and having the wisdom, that all those Old Testament texts about wisdom and, and that practical knowledge that come as a result of gifts, uh, of, of grace, in earnestness, that's a, a type of, 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 of an ability to have some type of willpower that keeps in the same direction, and in our love for you, and, and actually in the original language it's a picture of of, of the of the of the love of the of, you know of, of the Holy Spirit is the love between the, the Trinity uh, the Father and the Son and it's it's the love within the congregation of true believers and this this love which is is to characterize the the, the it, which does characterize the Trinity and is to, to characterize Christians that this love is now present in them as well. See that you excel in this act of grace also. In this act of grace also, we receive grace passively, but it makes us active in risking, in going, in, uh, in praying, in speaking, in giving. But some of you might say, okay, George, wow, you've taken us a long way from this question. And I, I, I do agree that you've surprised, the, the Bible has surprised me here about how it talks about money. And the Bible has asked me some cultural questions, which, in fact, I'm not entirely sure where to go with it. It it might very well be the case that money by itself actually doesn't create generosity, but maybe it does create something like selfishness. But, George, isn't the Bible still telling us to give money? Like, isn't, isn't God still being bossy? No, for two reasons. The first is it makes it very clear he's not... God is not ordering, ordering us around. Look at verse, uh, uh, at verse 8. I say this not as a command. And in the original language, uh, the word command has an implication of a command from God. In the original language. I say this not as a command, but to prove or to test by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. And, and what it means here. Uh, if you could put it up, Andrew, is the next point. The Bible encourages us to let love grow and run its course by taking next steps. The Bible doesn't command here. It specifically re- rejects it. What the Bible is doing here is encouraging. And you might say that's a different a distinction without a difference. No, in this particular case, it's a distinction with a difference. <laughs> It's a very, very different thing. I just discovered recently uh, that a, a, an acquaintance of mine who's becoming a friend, that just uh, 11 months ago, he was robbed by gunpoint in a taxi. Uh, he was in a, in, a, in a third world country. He was taking a taxi to the airport, and the guy pulled over in a dark spot, turned around, stuck a gun in his face, and said, give me everything you have. <laughs> and... Um, 
it ended up, I mean, he told me about this now, so obviously he didn't die in the whole thing, and it ended up, you know, it was, it ended up, he ended up getting out of the whole, I mean, he, he did lose everything, by the way. He had to give everything, his suitcase, his credit cards, everything but his passport, which was sort of tucked away in another part of his body, and the guy didn't notice it. Um, if God wanted to, he could show you up, and he could say, give me all you got. God's way more powerful than a guy with a gun. He, just like that. He could just do it like that. And he could command us in a way that would just mean we've got to do all this. But this isn't a text about commanding. It's a text of he's telling you of what it is that grace is. And that if you understand what grace is and what God's grace is, and if that grips you, all I wanted to tell I'm just telling you about this. I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you that as the love of God comes into your life and as the love of God moves you to be connected to other brothers and sisters, like don't let the idols of your life freeze you up, but let love run its course. Let grace run its course. Let the Holy Spirit run its course. God's Holy Spirit is not going to hurt you. And the image of prove is it would be as if in a month or two when the ice is, is getting uh, harder and, uh, and you go out to a rural area uh, and, and you maybe you want to you wanna do some ice fishing with your kid or your friend or something like that and, and you're a bit nervous because you're like me, a city slicker and you're going out to a rural area and, and you're a bit cautious on the ice but you're testing the ice to prove that it will hold you up and that's what the Bible is saying. is Just let... Okay, your idols are making you afraid. Your flesh is making you afraid. Let love run its course. Let the Bible speak into your life. Let God's grace go, and as it starts to go, take these little steps to prove that, in fact, God is dependable. That's what the Bible's saying. And that's the first reason. The second is connected to a question. Well, George, that's very interesting that you say that grace is uh, God's grace is uh, justice without compromise and a love to the uttermost, which has the real power to enter into human lives and changes for a true good. But is that you're just saying that? It's what the Bible says. Andrew, could you put a point seven? And I'd like you to read this with me. This is one of the greatest verses in the Bible. And if all you today is start to to want to memorize that Bible verse, then then I think I've done a good job. Could you say it out loud with me? For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Let's say it together again. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. The Bible here points to a real person in real history as a sign that God's grace is real. And the only reason that Paul is writing this, if you know anything at all about the person who wrote this part of what we now call the Bible, is that this guy was a religious fundamentalist who hated people who were different. Hated the other. And what changed him was meeting Jesus after he'd risen from the dead. Paul knows that Jesus really... I mean, there's no debate amongst... Other than a few kooky Marxists that are still left, nobody debates that Jesus lived. (laughs) 
and there's not really any debate about the fact that the tomb was empty and that they never found the body. And there's no real debate about whether or not he was crucified. The debate comes, and there's not actually even much of a debate that almost from immediately, from the get-go, the message was that the grave was empty because Jesus had risen from the dead. What the world won't accept is that the, the, the most reasonable solution to, to the facts is that, in fact, we don't live in a closed universe. We don't live in a universe in a world where there's only cause and effect and there's only human power and natural power, but, in fact, there is a God who is outside of our created order that has broken in, that speaks to us, and in fact, that's what this text is saying. Can you say it all out loud with me again? For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. This is even more powerful in the original language. Though he was rich, we know that on a human level, Jesus was never rich. This is referring to the fact that it wasn't that human beings were all clamoring for God to come and reconcile us to himself. It wasn't that human beings had had a petition that said, God, we know we are powerless to reconcile ourselves to you and we're calling out to you to do something we can't do. That wasn't going on. Human beings were at enmity with God. They were ignoring God. They were in rebellion against God. And Jesus, now not yet having taken on our flesh, God, the Son of God in heaven. This text is talking about the pre-existence of God, the Son of God. And God, the Son of God, in the glory of heaven and the splendor of heaven, he was rich. What does he do? He comes into our human life through his, his... How rich is a fetus? Fetuses aren't rich. In fact, there's probably nothing more powerless and more frail than a fetus, especially in the early days of conception. And God, the Son of God, takes upon himself our human nature and is born is as an act of miracle, an act of creation from the stuff of Mary. God works a miracle so that God, the Son of God, without stopping being God, maintaining his nature as God, but setting aside the environment of heaven, his prerogatives, his privilege, his power, all of these things, he becomes poor. And he's born. And he lives amongst us. And then he dies upon the cross, bearing our curse and bearing our shame. And as we all know, You cannot be poorer than dead. Even a dead person, the only person weaker and more poor than a fetus is someone who's died. Five minutes after Gates gives his last breath, his personal possession of money is the same as the poorest person on the planet who's also died. Poor. So say this text with me again. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. 
And so this describes how God breaks into our world, and he doesn't break in with a gun to stick us up, to have power over us, that it's grace, it's going to be the uttermost justice, justice without compromise, love to the uttermost, and so Jesus is described as God, the Son of God, taking into himself our human nature, becoming what we now refer to as Jesus, fully God, yet fully human, but one person who lives a human life, and his human life it all culminates, not just in the incarnation, not just in being human, but culminates in his death upon the cross, and not just any death upon the cross, it's not just a random death, but it's a death where he becomes the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, where all of our sin, all of our curse, all of our our, our shame, all of, all of our, the accusations against us, they, they rest upon him and he dies in our stead and in our place. In our place condemned, he stood and he tastes all there is to taste of death. And then on the third day, he rises triumphant, having conquered that which causes death and death itself and all hostile spiritual powers in his resurrection. And the Bible says, that he does all of this, not for himself, but for you and me. Isn't that what it says? Say it out loud with me again. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And it says might become rich, because we have to respond to this in faith. We have to say, God, I cannot fix myself, I cannot save myself. In fact, even today, this text has made me realize that I I live out of idle narratives and narratives about money and narratives about power and narratives about fear from you. And I, I, I can't fix that by myself, Father. And I need to receive what Jesus has done for me, knowing that you have done, you have the one, you have become, you have done everything that has to be done and all I can do is receive it. And I call out to you, Have mercy upon me. Take me as your own. And what is grace? Grace is justice without compromise and love to the uttermost, which has the real power to enter into human lives, enter into your life and mine, and change us for our true good. So just wrapping it up. This is a text about financial generosity. So to Christians who are here, I'm not going to tell you to do anything. I'm going to say this. Um, This text shows that it's a choice to be generous. And if we're waiting to have more money to be generous, we will wait forever. We will wait to the grave. And I know that some of us here are actually probably have crippling debt. And um, what happens is when we have crippling debt, and I have had a time in my life, more than one time in my life, where I had crippling debt. I don't, I don't have it right this second, but I, I, I'm not talking out of just reading it in a novel. I, I've, had, I've had collection agencies harassing me at home at a time in my life. Miss Orchard. I dreaded a phone call from Miss Orchard. <laughs> And so we think to ourselves, well, this is a very powerful message and I want to be gripped by the gospel, but what I need to do now, George, as a result of this, is I'm I'm going to get a hold of my finances and deal with my finances and make some money and get out of this debt so I can be generous. But one moment, what was our first, what was one of the early points? Does money make us generous? 
Does having more money make us generous? Did you know that statistically, and, and when if you, you go, one of the things about going to financial planners and all that, what they'll tell you is that most people have an overspending problem, and if all of a sudden you give them $10,000 of extra income, in no time at all they, ha- they have a spending problem. Because we have spending problems. And I'm just going to suggest to you that if your life is in financial disarray and in chaos, what you really need is God's grace. (laughs) That's what you really need. And you really need to take some small steps of allowing this pressure and this desire to be generous. And you need to take some small steps. And, uh, you know, um, I don't think the Bible teaches in the New Testament that Christians have to tithe. But I, I think that the Bible gives, at least as a bit of a, of a rule of thumb, when the Bible here is talking about being generous, I think that the rule of thumb is, is that we move towards and we pray towards trusting that God, who's provided us every single penny, asks for 10% of it back. And for some of us, God will, the grace of God will give us extra gifts of being able to be financially generous. And so, Andrew, if you could put up this prayer. This is a prayer for many of us today. Lord, I recommit myself to you. Please make me a disciple of Jesus. And I'm not sure if my wording here is going to be the same as the screen. The screen's better. But please make me a disciple of Jesus gripped by the gospel, who is not ruled by money, but is freed up to live a generous life for the good of people and for your glory. And that's the prayer we need to take away with us. It'll be on the webpage. If you're curious about using that as an aid to your prayer, it'll be on the webpage tomorrow. And, and for non, non-Christians, you've, you've, if you're here, you've heard that what God has done to save you. And I just want to encourage you that your first prayer is just to say, you know, Lord, I want to be yours, or just to say, maybe, Andrew, if you could put up the last slide, Lord, make me a disciple of Jesus, gripped by the gospel who's living for your glory. Make me a disciple of Jesus. And Father, when I give my hands to Jesus and I'm gripped by what who he is and what he's done for me, I know that I, I, he reaches across and grips my hand, and he not only takes me into himself, but comes to live within me and gives me his Holy Spirit. And that grace, which is justice without compromise and love to the uttermost, that will come into my life for my good and for God's glory, that that will begin to take place because God is real. Friends, could you please stand? Andrew, could you put the, uh, the, the Lord I recommit myself prayer up to you, please? Uh, I'm just going to invite you to uh, pray this prayer out loud with me. And if I stop saying it, it's just because I, 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 I might have the different wording here than on the screen. So I'll just start it. And then you guys, if, if, if God has put it on your heart to pray it, if you would continue on, that would be great. We'll pray this prayer together, and then I'll just pray in closing. Let's pray. Lord, I recommit myself to you. Please make me a disciple of Jesus. Group. Ruled by money, was freed by the Holy Spirit, freed up to live a generous life for the good of others. Father, pour out your Holy Spirit upon us.
Deliver us, Father, from a, an unhealthy fear of you and grant us, Father, a godly fear of you, a, a deeper, deeper knowledge of who you are and your great grace and love towards us in our great need for you. Pour out your Holy Spirit. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, your Son and our Savior. Amen.